I think somebody here wants to talk about vampires. But I want to hear you talk about vampires. What can you tell me about them? Forget what you think you know. Vampires exist. My name is Blade. I was born half human, half vampire. They call me the Daywalker. Tonight, the age of man comes to an end. Welcome to the now playing Blade movie retrospective series. Now that's the guy I want to hear about. I want to hear about this character, Blade. Part of the now playing Marvel comic movie series. Ooh, so exciting, isn't it? Hosted by Jacob. So, you're the hunter they all fear. Stuart. Ready to die. I was born ready, motherfucker. And Arnie. He was born perfect. And just like the great white shark, this guy has never had to evolve. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review a new Blade film. The hell makes you think you know about hunting vampires? There are worse things out tonight than vampires. Such as detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. It's open season on all suckheads. Let's get down to business, shall we? Today we're discussing Blade, starring Wesley Snipes, Stephen Dorff, Chris Christopherson, Nabouche Wright, and Donna Logue. Directed by Stephen Norrington. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Why, Arnie, you, did, did you have a cold 45 before you came on? You're just, I don't know. Uh, Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob, and I'm going to be naughty. I'm going to be a naughty podcasting god. <laughs> Aren't you always? And we are now back to our Marvel retrospective series, looking at the Blade films, which I have to say, when I saw Blade in theaters in 98, no clue that it was from Marvel Comics. Yeah, the first time I saw it, I had no clue either. And you have to really pay attention to the opening credits to have that clue, if you didn't know that going in. Well, was this not the first theatrical Marvel property proper? I mean, not counting, you know, the Salinger Captain America and the Fantastic Four that didn't get released. I mean, this was the first one. How could you forget Howard the Duck? Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck. (laughs) No, that was my point. This is the first one since Duck, right? Technically. Technically, I think the Dolph Lundgren Punisher showed up in a couple screens. But yes, this was the first big Marvel movie in 12 years. That's how bad Howard's legacy was. Wow. And the first to make money. Indeed. This was a very successful film and gave Avi Arad the clout he needed to make X-Men. It was specifically because of Blade's success that X-Men occurred. It showed that comic book movies could be profitable, especially when kept on a lower budget. Well, that point had already been proven, Arnie. I mean, Batman had already been doing amazing. I think that is probably the inspiration here, right? The the gothic dark quality that Tim Burton brought to the Batman films. That's what they're trying to capture here with Blade. You know what? Batman film came out the year before this one. Don't say Batman. Batman and Robin. Ooh. Which, yes, which the diametric opposite of what you're claiming. <laughs> Maybe it did prove that you could make money with comic book movies after that. Yeah, I mean, we were at a bad point for comic book movies in the late 90s. I mean, we'd had the heyday with the Tim Burton Batmans, but yeah, 97 had Batman and Robin and Steel. Oh, jeez. The year before that was The Phantom, and Spawn came out around this time. 
these are I'm all just concerned how many of these I'm going to have to watch. But. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, Steel is probably just about it if we ever get around to doing a DC retrospective. Uh-huh. But yeah, at this point, superhero movies were in a bit of a lull, a lull that X-Men would help resurrect out of. And again, that can be pointed back to Blade and writer David Goyer. But Jacob, you're the comic book guy. I'm confused because, again, I didn't know that Blade was comics. I read a lot of comics in the 80s and 90s. I only saw Blade, and I only realized this in retrospect, he was like in one issue of Ghost Rider I read in the early 90s. Was he a big character that I just missed? No, he was not a big character. I mean, he started up in 1973 in a series called The Tomb of Dracula, which was focused on Dracula going around fighting rogue vampires or these vampire hunters hunting down other vampires. And that's where Blade made his first appearance. And he came and went. They tried to resurrect him a few times in different comic book series. He was a team of vampire hunters. But it really, it was this movie or the series of movies that kind of brought him back into the Marvel Universe. They've tried a few more times to bring him back and get him a solo series going. They've never stuck around more than 12 issues. But this movie really changed the way he was seen in the comic book universe. So basically what you're telling me is he's the comic book version of Blackula. Like, that was tapping into the black exploitation market of Dracula. Well, yeah, I mean, in the 70s, you saw Marvel and DC trying to bring more characters of color into the comics. Not always the most unstereotypical, like you say, getting into Blackula and, and black exploitation. Yes, there are some remnants of those traits in these characters from the 70s. So these movies, they really gave a rebirth to the Blade character. I mean, literally, they totally made him over, changed him, gave him different powers, his look. In the 70s, he'd throw out the quips. Think of Shaft or something like that. And he'd throw, Uh you know, what you doing, fool? You know, those kind of things. Not what you would expect from, I guess, Wesley Snipes. And so when this movie came along, they really updated the character, gave him the 90s fade and the tattoos and, you know, a much tougher attitude. Changed his powers around. In the original Blade, he didn't have these superpowers. He was just immune to vampire bites because similar to the origins in this movie, his mother is bitten while she's giving birth to him, but he's only immune to the vampire bites. Because of this movie, they went back and they changed his character. They had him bitten by Morbius, the living vampire. So Blade had all the strengths of a vampire, but none of the weaknesses, much like we see him in these films where he becomes the daywalker. He's the vampire that could be out in the light. So my question to that is, if he wasn't even like a half vampire in the comics until this movie... I guess I'm confused, back similar to Man-Thing, why you'd license a comic book character to make a movie that's not at all like the comic book character. I mean, it's a black guy with a sword killing vampires. That's about it. Yes, it's a black guy. One uses wooden stakes in the comic, and I guess this blade uses metal stakes. But they're both vampire hunters. I mean, and that's the basic conceit of Blade. It's, it's this vampire hunter because they got his mama. And he's going to get revenge on him. And I guess I don't have a problem with the reimagining if it works. And we'll discuss if it works here. But you know what kind of bugged me the most is when I'm paying attention to Blade in the movies. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Vampirella at all. She was a sexy vampire who runs around in a red thong created in the 60s. I felt they really just ripped off that character and made her into a black man because her whole gig was that she had all the strengths of a vampire, but none of the weaknesses and had to occasionally feed on blood, much like this Blade in the movies. You know, I hadn't thought Vampirella. Let me tell you why I saw Blade in theaters. And it's not because I was a big Wesley Snipes fan, although I kind of am. But it was mostly because I was a big Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. And Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV show, had started in early 97, 
here we are about a year and a half into Buffy, and I was wanting more of that type of thing, and here we have a super-powered being killing vampires using martial arts and weaponry. And I'm like, okay, it's like Black Buffy. And I can't help but think that Buffy's success on television had something to do with this film getting greenlit, because it's got a lot of the same kind of tone where it's less horror, more action. Well, not surprisingly, I am a newbie to Blade, as I am to most of these Marvel characters. I'd never heard of him until this movie came out, and never even wanted to watch this until we decided after Fright Night this seemed to be the right time to bring this Marvel chapter into play. I am familiar, however, with black exploitation, and I am a fan of Blackula. Early 70s, campy, Afrocentric Blackula. He actually challenged Count Dracula on the slave trade back in the 1800s, <laughs> was bitten, resurrected by a gay couple from the Greenwich Village who bought his castle, and ends up stalking sisters at the disco. It's quite Can a lot of Can we that fun. movie into this retrospective? <laughs> I'm down, guys, because I also saw Scream Blackula Scream, the sequel. And so when you say something like Blade, well, here's another selling of that stereotypical black male black exploitation portrayal. It wasn't surprising to me to hear that this character was created in the 70s, and it makes sense that Stipes would be the one. I think of him as when black movie renaissance happened in the early 90s, Wesley Snipes became the action star of that time period. You know, like, Van Damme did the splits, Seagal had the ponytail, and Snipes made jokes about his skin color. You know, always bet on black. That was his deal. And starting with New Jack City, he really did position himself as the new Richard Roundtree. It makes sense that if you were going to have this kind of black exploitation continuation of Blackula, it's got to be Snipes, right? It just makes sense to me. Yeah, for this coming out in the 90s, I mean, what was this, 98? Yeah, Wesley Snipes seems like the obvious choice. I can't imagine any of the other preeminent black actors that come out of the early 90s. I mean, it, Denzel, no, it's not the right vibe. It has to be Snipes. I mean, if you ever saw New Jack City, and I recommend that you do, his Nino Brown, quite charismatic. He's an anti-hero, you know, even though you don't want to like him, there's something about his over-the-top decadence that just makes you like him. So he's perfect to play a conflicted half-vampire, half-human. Here's the thing. I mean, when I think of Wesley Snipes, I have seen New Jack City, but the things I think about him for are really light-hearted fare, like Major League and White Men Can't Jump. Hey, come on. The reason I like Snipes is because he's in one of my favorite guilty pleasure movies, Demolition Man. I love him in that. I <laughs> yes. love him in Demolition Man. I, I think that's more representative of his work at large. I mean, I think of him Passenger 57, Murder on 1600. He's done a lot of low-rent action movies in the 90s. He was that guy. You know, Denzel got all the Oscar parts, Eddie got all the comedies, and he got to be the action hero. I don't think of him as particularly funny. I always thought of him as an amusing kind of person, though. He always seemed to be there with a quip. Now, admittedly, the trailer alone was enough to make me not see Murder at 1600. <laughs> but I think of, like, Money Train, Demolition Man. I think of him more as a comedy guy who's done some action because of his start with Major League and White Men Can't Jump. Admittedly, movies I haven't seen. And so... This kind of stoic character isn't what I'd necessarily expect from him, but he's also like a fifth degree black belt in martial arts. So he's got like the Steven Seagal cred of the black belt, but more acting chops than Steven Seagal. And less fat. <laughs> but more IRS troubles. <laughs> Hence Blade 3. Hence no Blade 4. <laughs> 
<laughs> Once he gets out of jail, I'm sure he'll be ready for it. Which, you know, we're doing all the Marvel Comics films leading up to the Avengers, but we put Blade here because, first of all, well, Blade 4 isn't coming for years at the soonest. But I do want to point out to our listeners, this is a three-part retrospective series. We are doing the three theatrical Blade films. Despite having delved into TV movies with Generation X, and we're probably going to be doing some more TV in the future. Wait, Arnie, is the Blade TV show good and that's why we're not doing it? You made us do those awful ones. (laughs) No, I actually took the bullet here because I wanted to know... If you go out to Walmart, there's a Blade DVD movie pack, and it's four movies, and they say four Blade films. And so I had never seen the Blade series, I picked it up on DVD, and I watched this fourth Blade movie called Blade House of Cthon. And I expected to have to try to convince Stuart, yes, we have to do it! But I watched it, and I have to say, my first time watching it, I've ended up watching it three times, but my first time watching it, I was so disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) watch it a couple more dozen and you might like it blade is hardly in it and what it is is it is not a movie and whoever buys it there's actually a single dvd release just blade house of Cthulhu, sold like a movie if you buy it you've been punked jokes on you you are not buying a movie there is no arc to this it is setting up the beginning of the entire series. It is introducing characters. It does not have a self-contained story. It is like reviewing the first two hours of Stephen King's The Stand and saying, we're not going to review the next six. So as it's not a self-contained story, there's really no way to review it without watching the whole series, which I believe neither of you want to do. No. 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 (laughs) Oh, no. This is not a TV podcast. (laughs) Well, for our listeners who want My thoughts on Blade the series, I'm actually going to be posting a review of each episode, one per day, for the entire time that we do the Blade movie retrospective series. So if you come to our forums, go to nowplayingpodcast.com and click the link, you can read my individual breakdowns, summaries, and reviews of all the Blade series episodes. Cool. You're such a trooper, Arnie. Yeah, I know. Really not cool. Not cool at all. But... But presuming you're not Arnie and you don't need to dive into all of Blade, (laughs) maybe we just ought to start with this uh, introductory movie. Plot summary? We start with a flashback to the 70s, where a pregnant woman named Vanessa Brooke is taken into the hospital, having been bitten by a vampire. She gives birth before her human life ends, and her offspring is Blade, a half-human, half-vampire with all of the vampire's powers, the strength, the agility, the healing, but none of their weaknesses, save for the thirst for blood. Now in present day, Blade has been trained to be the ultimate vampire hunter by his mentor and weapons master Whistler, played by Chris Christopherson, and Blade uses injections of an artificial serum to stave off his hunger for blood. Blade ruthlessly kills vampires, their human familiars, and anyone that they bite lest the victims rise again as vampires. But while tracking down old enemy Quinn, played by Donald Logue, hematologist Dr. Karen Jensen is bitten, which gives Blade flashbacks to his mother when he was born, so he takes Karen in rather than decapitating her. While Whistler tries to use injections of garlic to stave off Karen's transformation, Karen aids Blade by trying to find a permanent cure for his vampire thirst, and also helps in investigating Quinn's boss, a vampire named Deacon Frost, played by Stephen Dorff. 
Frost is a turned vampire, a vampire that used to be human, and thus is in a lower caste of the vampire house of Erebus than the pureblood masters. But Frost is staging a coup while using a computer to translate the old vampire scriptures on how to raise La Madra, the vampire blood god. Frost kills one of the elders of the house and kidnaps the others as they are required for the ritual, but one other ingredient is needed, the blood of the Daywalker Blade. Frost turns Whistler into a vampire, and when Blade discovers this, Whistler kills himself shooting himself with a silver bullet, and Blade goes for a showdown with Frost. But Blade is unprepared to face his own mother. It turns out Frost is the vampire that bit Vanessa, and with this shock, Blade is captured and Frost performs the ritual, turning himself into La Madra. But with Karen's help, Blade escapes, kills all the vampires, and then has a very flashy sword fight with the now godly Frost. And when swords and stakes can't take down La Madra, Blade uses Karen's new chemical weapon, a compound called EDTA, which causes vampire blood to explode. And with Frost defeated, Blade refuses Karen's offer for a cure that would turn him human, opting instead to continue his nighttime war against the undead across the globe. Really? Kind of a simple plot. Mm-hmm. Very straightforward, but a lot of details that I'm sure we're going to get into. Yeah, yeah, it's straightforward as long as you don't get into those details, because I got some questions about the details, but we'll get into <laughs> it. But, I mean, this is written by David Goyer, who, Stuart, I believe you're a fan of his. No. No? Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, no. I hate him. I think his writing sucks. Dark Shitty is a movie I detest. Okay. The Dark Knight? Batman Begins? He didn't write that. He didn't write that. He wrote the story. He has story credit. He is lucky enough to have hitched his trailer to Nolan's stars. Nolan wrote those movies. What about Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., starring David Hasselhoff? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I'll find out when we get there. I really thought that because of his attachment to the Nolan Batman films, that this would be somebody you'd be championing. Because I know you've mentioned so many times how much of a fan you are. He's also the writer for Dark Knight Rises and Man of Steel. And Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, which we'll be reviewing. Yeah, I love him. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta say, I mean, the guy has comic book cred. He got his early start. One of his early films was that David Hasselhoff Nick Fury film through some work on The Crow, but with the three Blade films, Batman Begins, it gives me hope next year for Ghost Rider's resurrection. (laughs) The guy knows his comics, and he's got a way to be true to them that I really enjoy. And he'd been championing this film since 93 or 94. What's funny is, The character Whistler in this film, I'd known of him before the film because I watched the Spider-Man cartoon that was on and Blade made an appearance with Whistler, but that was Goyer's creation. His script had been floating around for so long that they actually adopted that character into a Spider-Man cartoon three years before this film was made. So he definitely has his friends in Marvel. And when the film opens, it gives me a really good vibe. I knew I was happy to be there when I saw it in theaters because we start with Tracy Lords. <laughs> Isn't she a porn star? Yeah, was the seat sticky when you were watching it? Because I can't imagine being in a theater and seeing Tracy Lords and being in a reputable place. All right. Well, I've obviously never seen her porn because it's all illegal. <laughs> but believe it or not, I, I kid you not, and you, you may all laugh at me now, I became a fan of hers through her music. Wait, she has a, <laughs> she has a music career? <laughs> Does her CD sit next to a Paris Hilton's in your collection, Arnie? <laughs> I really liked her album. I listened to it quite often. <laughs> He's not making it up either. No. He, he buys these things unironically. That's what I love about it. He 
<laughs> is it sitting next to Robin Pham? <laughs> I was working as a DJ. This was one of the CDs they had there. I played it as a joke, and it turned out I really liked it. This is how it goes, usually. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I was a fan of her music, and it was this kind of techno music, a lot like what's playing at the club she goes to. And you know, Tracy Lords is looking good in this film. I actually met her a few years after this, and she looked really bad and haggard, so good to see her looking healthy. This time watching it... I went, where the fuck did Tracy Lords go? Was it a cameo? They cover her in blood. She's got this, you know, brown hair when she's normally a blonde anyway. So she's hard enough to spot. And once all the vampires get covered in blood, I couldn't tell them apart. Not to mention there's that other blonde vampire with the ponytails that kind of looks like her when she's covered in blood. The one that ends up being Stephen Dorff's girlfriend. Yeah. And so I didn't know that Tracy Lords had died. When I'm working up my notes... I'm like, where the hell did Tracy Lords go? And so I had to go back and watch it again. And I'm like, oh, she's the one who got shot in the chin. Well, you know, I really like this club scene that it goes into. It made me wonder why it took Lost Boys 3 12 years to replicate it and steal it. But I liked the atmosphere straight off the bat, going to that club, the pounding music, the strobe lights. It let me know that, hey, this is not your typical tights and capes movie. This is something different. We're taking this in a different direction. Yeah, I think I realized that when I saw Donald Logue on the sofa kissing one girl while getting head from another. Yes. (laughs) This is definitely a hard R film. I just got to wonder, though, you know, you see Tracy, she picks up some guy off the street to take to this club. It ends up being a club full of vampires. And, like, that's their whole meal, this one guy. I was thinking the same thing. It's like, are they all just going to have a teaspoon of blood? Plus, they have more blood in the sprinkler. You know, it's actually a rave. It's not even a club. It's like a happening. Like, they just set up shot in a meatpacking, right? Just, like, some turntables and right next to, like, cattle carcasses. Yeah, which I like. It makes sense. You know, you got vampires, they're bloodsuckers. They bring in this whole metaphor of humans being like cattle later on in the film. Visually, it's very cool looking. Like, it grabbed me right away when I was watching this. When the blood starts shooting out of the sprinklers, and the colors is very vivid. I think we can all agree it's the best scene in the movie. It hooks <laughs> you, and it does a very good job of introducing all of the characters, and it kind of is a litmus test for what you're going to think of the rest of the movie. I don't know that I can go along with you guys saying that it's great, but I do feel like it's the best that this movie's going to be. It's definitely one of the best scenes, yes. It's a great way to kick it off before we get into any plot, and it's one hell of an introduction to this new character, right? I mean, this is one of the best entrances I can recall, as they're in the middle of this, the guy's trying to escape, everybody's covered in blood, he gets to the foot of blade he's completely clean head to toe black leather body armor whatever it is and they just pan up and everybody kind of parts and it's you know like the red sea parting it's with all the people covered in blood and he's there and then he just hauls off and kicks a lot of ass it's a very clint eastwood moment i was thinking of the man with no name watching it it's a classic storytelling device and it was an excellent introduction for blade couldn't have really highlighted him any better. I enjoyed the choreography as he's taking out these vampires. But can we talk about the CGI in this film just a little bit? Like, it did not age well. <laughs> no. I don't know where the state of CGI was in 98. I know the Matrix came out the next year, and that CGI is a whole <laughs> lot better. I'm guessing they had a lot more budget for their film. But every time he kills a vampire, they go and turn into this flaming skeleton, which I thought was a cool idea. I just wish it looked better. Like, every time I saw it, it took me out of the film. So at least they kept the CGI shots very short. 
so you don't have a lot of time to ponder on how bad they look. You're speaking specifically about he's got a shotgun and he's blowing away people and that makes them turn into a puff of blood, really, right? Yeah, and they turn into a skeleton and it, yeah. Yeah. It takes me out. I liked the action that was going on. It was just that I wish they weren't so reliant on computers in this movie because it's going to become a bigger problem as the movie goes on. You know, at the time when this movie came out, I didn't think anything of it. And watching it this time, all the ashing that goes on here, that I think what they refer to it as is ashing the vampires, didn't bother me so much. There are some CGI shots, specifically later in the movie around the climax, that are like Roger Rabbit bad. But the ashings... It didn't take me out of it at all, but I did think, well, that didn't age so well. You know, I'm pretty much on record as referring practical over CGI, but they're trying to do something more for the cyber computer-inclined audience, as we'll see later in the plot. You know what else doesn't age well in this opening scene? It's when Blade confronts Quinn, played by Donald Logue. He sticks that stake in one shoulder. He takes out a stake, sticks it in the other shoulder, and what does he do? A fist pump. (laughs) Like... I'm like, yes, this is 1998, because there's no way you would see a unironic fist pump in 2011. <laughs> like, I'm sure that was pretty badass to see Wesley Snipes do a fist pump after staking a guy back then, but man, it got a laugh out of me, but it wasn't, <laughs> I don't think it was an intentional laugh. Well, here's how you know, like, were you fist pumping as well? I mean, I feel like this scene is really going to tell you whether this movie is for you or not. If you go with the fist pump and you're like, yeah, you're going to love the rest of this movie. If you're going, what the hell? You probably should just take it off now. I was going with the scene until the fist pump. So what does that say? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I guess we'll find out when you recommend the movie or not. But I feel like for a certain crowd, this is a fist pumping moment. This is a mega awesome thing to watch. Me? (laughs) We'll get into it when we get into it. But I can honestly say I wasn't thrilled. Oh, man, I got a bad feeling. I feel like Jerry did at the beginning of Transformers 3 here. No, feel like Jerry did in the beginning of Transformers 1, because we got two more of these. (laughs) Artie, were you fist pumping too then? Were you going along with it? Yes, he was. I can tell you right now. (laughs) I was. He had the Glade glasses on. He's like, I am Blade. (laughs) You cosplayed this. I know you do. No, but I actually have a friend who does. He's even (laughs) looking at getting the tattoos for real. But... No, I was really loving this. I mean, I love Wesley Snipes' little smile right before the fist pump when he pulls out that little boomerang weapon and throws it and dusts all the vampires. I love that scene, too, just not pumping my fist to it. You know what this whole thing reminded me of in a very good way was Mortal Kombat. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And you're saying that ironically, right? I am a big fan of the original Mortal Kombat film, not so much the sequel. Oh, you're talking about the movie, not the video game. No, okay. the movie with the techno music and all the... Oh, gee. Okay, I do not agree with you then. <laughs> Christopher Lambert in the white hair? Uh, yeah, no. Uh-uh. With the techno music, all of the action, all of the martial arts, it was like a big rock'em ruckus Mortal Kombat scene, and I was digging it. I don't disagree with you. That's exactly what they're going for. That's exactly the aesthetic. And if that sounds appealing to you, you're in for it. If if you wanted Batman, for example, I don't feel like this is a great Batman mode. I kind of is. I mean, he's got the gadgets. You could look at his little boomerang thing as the blades battering. He's got the swords. Oh, no, I definitely feel that that was what they were going after. But I don't know that they achieved that. I guess I'll put a more fine point on this. 
I'm not experiencing Blade as a superhero in this moment. I don't feel like I'm on his side and fighting for his cause. Obviously, there's no character development. I don't even think there's any lines here. But the reason I'm rooting for him is because he kicks a whole lot of ass. You know, you mentioned the Clint Eastwood. He's a badass motherfucker. And that makes me like him. No, I'm right there with you, Arnie. I'm enjoying this. It's that fist pump that ruins it for me, not buying the CGI. But I like what they're doing. I like the visual style. I like the action. I love that boomerang scene where it goes around in a circle and slices them all apart. I'm enjoying this. You know, you got to have a certain mentality to enjoy this. If you're looking for the King's speech, probably not the movie for you, but it's fun so far. And the fist pump, you're really hung up on the fist pump. It. <laughs> I've seen this movie half a dozen times. I never noticed that he does a fist pump here. Not once. I just started cracking up when I saw that. Like, I don't remember it from the first time I saw this film, but I was cracking up. It was hilarious. I also don't get the why he'd fist pump after staking Quinn after he doesn't fist pump when he kills a hundred vampires, but he pins one to the wall and yes. Question for this. Most vampires, when he gets them, they're not coming back. But Quinn, Donald Logue, he keeps ticking. Is there something special about him? Am I supposed to understand why Blade keeps killing him and he keeps coming back? You gotta destroy the heart. They're kind of like zombies. You gotta stick that stake through the heart or shoot the bullet through the heart, whatever. It, and Blade never did that. He stuck it through each shoulder of his. And Yeah, he cuts off his hand, he messes up his face, he never gets the kill shot in. Blade is a vampire killer. Yes. And he doesn't know to do this. And it's implied that this is the next of many encounters that they've already had where he's taken him out. I mean, this isn't their first rodeo. I think it's just a matter of he's the one that keeps getting away. It's the bullet doesn't hit the right spot and he hasn't decapitated him yet. It's point blank. I'm no blade, but I'm pretty sure I could get the stake into it. Well, in this case, at the very beginning here at the rave, he wants information from him. And that's why he doesn't kill him with the first shot. And then afterwards, he sets him on fire, and the fire would eventually kill him in a nice, painful way. And so Blade would have his revenge for this guy getting away. But the cops come in and put him out before he's Ash. Yeah, he does get the kill shot in. He starts on fire, but they put him out. So it's just Quinn has good luck to continually be mutilated by Blade, but not be killed. I mean, I feel Quinn's there for comic relief, and that's kind of his gig, is that he always loses a limb that eventually grows back. I, I kind of like that that reoccurring gag with this character, you know? You, you gotta do something like that when you're fighting villains that could grow back their limbs, or they're really hard to kill. You gotta have that one person that's just a survivor, and I thought it was funny. And I like the actor. This actor is Donald Logue, who yes. I know from ER, he was on ER for quite a while. He'd later, after Blade, go on to do a show called The Knights of Prosperity that I absolutely loved and was canceled too soon. We'll see him again in Ghost Rider. I've seen him in just quite a bit of stuff. He's almost always this kind of comedic personality, and I think he really brings a lot to the screenplay. Every scene he's in, he adds a little levity to, which, you know... Wesley's so dour in this film. Ah, uh, yes. Let's get into that. You're right. This movie is humorless, so we gravitate towards anyone that's going to crack a smile because everyone else in this, not just Wesley, but literally everyone in this movie is skulking around like it would kill them to smile. <laughs> you thought this was humorless because I thought there was a lot of attempts of humor in this film. They were just really bad. And mostly on the part of Wesley Snipes' one-liners in here. Yeah. He has one-liners? <laughs> Arnie, I'm kind of surprised you don't quote this film as much as Howard the Duck. Like, I was writing down line after line after line. There's something worse than vampires tonight. 
Like what? Like me! Well, you already met Mr. Crispy at the hospital, and like, ugh. Yeah. Yeah, it's filled with the kind of one-liners they'd give Arnold or Stallone. I guess those aren't jokes at this point. That was my question. Is this supposed to be funny, or is that just supposed to be how action movies were in the 90s? Is that you just threw out puns, and and it's supposed to be badass? I'm going to vote the second. Yeah, I didn't take it as jokes. I took it as him being a badass. Yeah. He does not appear to be a wisecracking kind of lighthearted guy. Mm-mm. He is no. so damn serious in this. It's like he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders. And let's face it, it's a almost, I would dare say, a risky choice to make your hero so damn unlikable. Because he's willing to kill anybody, use anybody for the goal of killing vampires. It is, for me, a real problem with this character and with this world is that if we're going to go along with that, this is dumb fun. Like, I understand this is not the king's speech. This is dumb fun. Somebody needs to have fun. Donald Logue is the only one having fun here. Everyone else is being very unironic. They take this stuff seriously, and they are totally acting as if this is an exciting, not campy, to be taken straight-faced dramatic action movie. And that was a surprise. I figured Ninja Vampires... (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Who isn't laughing? I mean... Blackula is hilarious. This was not hilarious. I gotta disagree with you. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I think Steven Dorff was having some fun here. Oh my god, really? Oh yeah, he was. Having some fun imitating Keith Ver Sutherland? <laughs> <laughs> In my first viewing of this film, I actually liked Deacon Frost so much more than Blade. Now, this watching, I didn't gravitate towards him so much, and I think it's because I've aged 12 years, and when I was first watching this in my early 20s, I was really identifying with him, kind of killing the old people who had always ruled the roost and coming into his own and taking control and taking charge. I could identify with that journey, and I liked his kind of more youthful, hip, modern aesthetic. He threw the cool parties. He was a cool guy. Uh, Let's just call it out what it is. He is Keith Sutherland from The Lost Boys, and vampirism to him is just a fashion statement. It's not to be scary. These are not monsters. They're not terrifying. They don't even really have an agenda. It's just something you do to make yourself stand apart and be goth. I found him completely boring as a villain. He had nothing villainous about him. It's like when someone pierces their tongue and gives themselves a mohawk and says, I'm radical. Well, it's a costume choice, but I don't (laughs) see you as a threat. And Steven Dorff is not a threat in this movie. And when I found out that originally this was designed to be a Jet Li vehicle, everything clicked. That made so much more sense. And my God, that would actually be a challenge for Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes versus Jet Li, that's a battle. Wesley Snipes versus Steven Dorff? <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> Deacon Frost was supposed to be played by Jet Li? Yeah, that was the choice. This was going to be, I believe, New Line's first foray into Blasian filmmaking. The whole black Asian thing they put together with Rush Hour, same year. This was going to be another example of Asian versus black. And, you know, they would go on and do the movie Romeo Must Die with Aaliyah and... Jet Li became a whole genre in and of itself. I guess it started with Last Dragon, but it became a big thing in the late 90s, and 
The problem is, though, if they had Jet Li, which that would be awesome. I'm a big martial arts fan. I've talked about that before. The problem is, if it was Jet Li, then Deacon Frost would have no speaking parts. Yeah, but I didn't need the guy to talk anyway. He just kind of glowered the whole movie. I didn't feel like he said one good thing. He's the one who pushes the action along. It's him who causes the conflict. It's not the actual vampires here. It's that damn youth culture trying to go out and make a statement. It would just work so much better if it had been Jet. Steven Dorff doesn't make any sense to me. But I liked what he brought to this. I liked his attitude. I liked his swagger. I really clicked with this character when I was watching it in the 90s. Now, this time, I kind of just looked at him and went, wow, you're just a little bit of a spoiled brat with a right of entitlement. Absolutely. And a computer. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Udu Kier, character actor I love, is represents the old vampires. And he was born a vampire, and that gives him seniority to anyone that's bitten. And he's always downgrading on Stephen Dorff, and he's like, you'll never translate our vampire Bibles. They're just in a dead language, and blah, blah, blah. And, like, Stephen Dorff feeds it through a computer, and it's like, haha, internet wins, fool. <laughs> Babble fish every time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really is a movie about, hey, it is catching youth culture at the time. This guy organizes raves, and goes online, and uses a computer to solve things that his old fuddy-duddy parents can't figure out how to do. Is Udukir the man that bit him? Is that the relationship? Or do we know who bit Frost? I don't know who bit Frost, but I got some of this from the Blade series, is that there's 12 vampire houses. And the house that all of these people are in is, I thought they were saying the house of Aramis, and I'm like, the musketeer or the cologne? But (laughs) (laughs) it turns out it's the house of Erebus with an E and a B. And so these are the ruling members of the house of Erebus. Well, it is hard to pronounce things when you're wearing fangs, <laughs> to be fair. So he's just the head of that house of which Deacon is a member. But why Deacon is allowed to be such a prick in their meetings, <laughs> just why they don't kill him is beyond me. Thank you, Arnie. Why is Deacon able to just walk in and access the mainframes of the vampire Bible and translating that? Things start falling apart the more they try to explain. You know, you get this whole confrontation between the old vampires that were born that way and the new vampires that are bitten. And the old vampires, you know, we have treaties with all the politicians and, you know, we got to stay hidden or else we'd be hunted down. But you know what? We eat animals all the time. I had a steak tonight for dinner. Our government doesn't have no treaty with the cows. We keep them in ranches and kill them when we need them. Like, things stop making sense as they try to explain them. Like, why don't they just treat the humans like cattle? Like, why are they so underground and hidden? Well, it's kind of a generational thing. It's like the old people want to stay in the closet. They don't want to make noise. They want to keep things the way they are. And this is the guy that wants to take it universal. You know, he does represent new generation that way. The online wired world generation. And so that's the conflict. It's like, he doesn't want to hide anymore. He wants to be out as a vampire and just tell anyone that has a problem with it, you're my bitch. I think that's really what the conflict is. And I went with that, especially, like I say, back then. And I even can go with the whole, the vampires have this agreement and all of that, because the difference between us and cows is that, well, we can go out in sunlight. It's not like cows have that super advantage of 12 hours a day. So a war would not behoove the vampires. So keeping it secret, having their food, that works. But again, when like, Dorf is down there listening to his iPod and searching the archives. Oh, whoa, whoa. That was a disc man. Come on. <laughs> yeah, not <laughs> this, yet. This is 98. No iPod yet. Yeah. 
That is some of its charm, is that as edgy as it tries to be, we've come quite a ways in another decade. But Udukir just slaps it. And I'm like, really? That's all you're going to do? He's going to defy your every law? And you slap him? And then when Deacon takes it out Udukir to the sunrise and kills him, it's like, yeah, and why didn't you do this to Deacon first? I think it would have made a lot more sense to me in the story if Udu had bitten him, if, if Dorf was his pet. And that it was just presumed that once you bite someone, they might disrespect you, they might get sassy, but they're your kid and they're not going to murder you. You know, I think that's the way it plays. And yeah, this is kind of a mob movie here of like the uprising and they take his fangs. You know, they get a pair of pliers. This is Joe Pesci shit. They take (laughs) a pair of pliers and like rip him out even as he's melting in the sunlight. They do him. It's totally a mob movie mentality when they decide the old guard is no longer in power. You may be right on. Maybe that's something there because I did think when Udukir slapped him, it's like a father disciplining a son. And you don't kill your son, but if you're... An old school father, you do beat the shit out of your son. (laughs) Right, yes. That seemed to be a paternal relationship there, and and an acrimonious one. Not a good one, but it still was like, you're my kid, and this is how it's going to be, but you just don't expect him to retaliate the way that he does. Yeah, I mean, in the archive scene, it was one step away from, if you live under my house, you follow my rules. (laughs) But one thing about the vampires is, you, you talked about the pulling out the fangs being a mob hit. One of what this reminded me of is... And I try to not remember this at all. The live action role playing game Vampire the Masquerade that was really big in the late 90s. I had some friends who were into it. I try not to judge, but it's so hard when they're walking around going, I'm a vampire. I mean, it's almost like that Nick Cage movie bad. And they pull out each other's fangs and play rock, paper, scissors to battle. I kid you not. It was rock, paper, scissors. And a lot of this reminded me of that culture, too. And they wanted to kind of be vampires even when they weren't larping they were wearing their like matrix uniforms it's uber nerdy but that's okay you're bringing up something very important though and that is this vampire its perception in pop culture was changing at this time and that is a part of that up to this point you know fright night the whole point is the vampire is scary you want to get away from the vampire you don't want them to bite you and starting around this time Vampires are cool. Vampires are a way to be. You're more fabulous when you aren't a part of normal, boring society, and this is a way of making you unique. I do feel like that was happening at this time. It was cooler to be on the outside, and all of this stuff... It influences where we're at with vampire culture now and why it's so pervasive. Is it, It's a fantasy at this point. It has stopped being a horde. And this movie sort of catches that in that transition. Well, and I remember in the, you know, mid-90s, late-90s, towards the end of high school, you know, 95, goth was becoming the big thing. They always adopted that whole vampire thing, you know, Marilyn Manson, all that. So, yeah. Pale skin, yeah. Yeah, so that this was really capturing what was going on. You know, you're moving away from punk as being the underground thing or the grunge scene in goth was coming in, into its own at this time. Definitely. Yeah, so I think that's a lot of why in the late 90s you can give Deacon the allowances as to why he is because it was just so hip to be. Yeah, it's definitely pandering to youth culture and I think you saying that you related to it then makes sense. You guys still like Steven Dorff in this movie? You think he's an adequate foe and a worthy foe for Blade? Muscular, tough, Take no guff, blade, and little Steven Dorf. <laughs> well, you're framing it that way. You say no, but the thing is, you know, you mentioned the mob, and I think that's very apt. 
I see that as Blade doesn't have a whole bunch of people backing him up. He has Whistler. And he has his weapons. Dorf doesn't have a lot of weapons or a lot of skill, but he's got a huge posse. And so, yeah, it seems pretty evenly matched. And I gotta say, the scene where they square off and Frost is wearing sunblock, <laughs> which I hate, <laughs> but, you know, I think that's just too easy and out. SPF 200, now I can do anything. Okay, <laughs> but... I love that scene when the two of them face off and Dorf has the little Asian child and is trying to convince Blade, you know. No, 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 no. Let's, when you say face off, I think punching, kicking, sword play. That's, it's not a face off scene. He's gone to him to barter. He's gone to him to basically say, hey, could you leave us alone? Cause like, we're going to do this thing and you're mean. <laughs> and if you don't, like, I'm going to throw this girl in traffic. Well, no, come on, Stuart. I think you're being unfair the way you're characterizing it. I don't. He was trying to recruit Blade. They needed him to bring about La Madra, the blood god. Now, is it executed this way perfectly? Maybe not. But again, I think they're trying to set up, you know, you got Blade as the brawn and Deacon as the brains. I mean, he's got a supercomputer that can translate a dead language. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying they pull that off perfectly, but I think, <laughs> I think that's what they're going for. Here's the guy that's setting up mob hits. He's the godfather behind the scene, overthrowing the old institutions. You know, you've got to be at least theoretically smart to take over a whole gang, a whole mob, a whole vampire culture like that. Again, I don't think they pull off that execution as well, but I think... That's what they were going for, and I'm willing to go with that. You know, that's a classic conflict, brains versus brawn. Brains is a stretch. I would say he's got the charisma. You want to be a part of his clique. I mean, or you don't. But, I mean, that's what he's selling, is that you can be one of the cool kids and hang out with us because aren't we fabulous in our mansions and our clubs and all of that. And given the rest of Detroit, yeah, I guess I would rather be hanging out as his pad than where everyone else lives. It's a total ghetto. But by and large, I feel like push come to shove, there's no reason Blade couldn't make mincemeat of this guy anytime he chose. Well, one of the great things is he's slippery. He's hard to catch. He was at that rave at the beginning, which is something I didn't notice until watching for this review, is he's got this brief moment of being at the rave, but he's the one who, not like Donald Logue who gets mutilated but lives, but this guy, he knows when to get the hell out. He's smarter. Brains? Question mark? <laughs> I, I'm just saying, that's what I think they're trying to set up. I don't think they pulled it off, but... <laughs> well, let's face it. Blade is not smart. <laughs> Blade is not a bright guy. Which is, I guess, why you go to Chris Christopherson? <laughs> Whoa! Can I just say, the last person I expected to see was, like, Willie Nelson's compadre in country music. <laughs> I had never seen Chris Christopherson in anything. I'd never heard his music. This was my first exposure to the man. Oh, okay, so it was probably less whiplash for you than it was for me. I was stunned that he was in this. I was confused because I didn't know who he was, but I'm like, isn't that a country singer? Like, I kind of knew the name. Big in the 70s. He, he yeah. really hasn't been anything musically or in the movies since the 70s, with the exception of one great little film called Lone Star. He was terrific in. Love the movie. That's probably why he got this gig. Had come out a couple years before. But mostly, I mean, he was famous for being in Scorsese's Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore or the notorious flop Heaven's Gate. He was a 70s dude. He did a horrible, just if you ever want a bad movie, like laughable. They remade A Star is Born with him and Barbara Streisand, 
Woo! Yeah, he was <laughs> a dude 20 years before, and now, I mean, it's like, where did they find him? And it, it looks like no one's done any grooming on him in the last 20 years. What a funny discovery that he should be here. I never imagined him fighting vampires. I like him in this film, though, because he's got that old cowboy thing going on. He's wearing the jeans. He's got the limp from a previous fight with a vampire. His drawl. He's also got a little bit of wit to him, but he's very dry about it. I like his presence here, and he's set up as the tragic character. He's got cancer, and the vampires turn him and make Blade let him commit suicide. I mean, it's a good arc here. And it's also Blade's father figure. You know, Blade has all these mother issues, but he's clung to Whistler as a father figure. They've got a good relationship going there. Did he raise Blade? Because, I mean, we understand, we see in the very opening of the movie that Blade was born and his mother was bitten and was not involved in his raising. So, was he the one that gave the baby to? Like, what happened to Blade for the last 30 years in between his birth and now living in this warehouse with Chris Gersoft? Some of that is explained in Blade the TV series. Oh, okay. (laughs) And you'll get to read my reviews. I will give a spoiler that Shaft plays Blade's actual birth father. Richard Roundtree? Yeah. Cool. But what's said in this movie is that Whistler found Blade as a teenager feeding on the homeless and was going to kill him and then realized he was a daywalker and instead tamed him and brought him over to the war against the vampires. Okay, that doesn't make any sense since they're, since they're ruthless vampire killers, but okay. He also makes the weapons. I mean, the reason why Blade has the battering and the sword that prongs on the handle when the wrong person touches it, all that stuff is because he's the real brains behind the operation. Yeah. I mean, you get the impression that he was the one out there doing all of this until his leg got fucked up, and so now he stays back and arms Blade to fight the good fight. He's like the Sancho to Blade's Quixote. Theoretically, I like that. I guess I just didn't feel like there was enough of him in this movie. I had no feelings for him. I, I, like I said, I was mostly just weirded out that Chris Christopherson had taken the part. But what really changes everything, you know, you speak of the mother, here we have Karen, the doctor, the hematologist, who Blade theoretically should have decapitated, but it calls back a memory to his birth? (laughs) Is is that what it was? Because I was wondering, you know, Quinn comes back to life in the hospital, bites a male doctor, and then bites Karen. Blade jumps in, saves Karen, he could have just as much saved the white male doctor, but I was wondering if it was a race thing, if he's just standing up for his people. Like, I have no idea why he came in and just saved her. I took it as he went there to finish off Quinn, because he knew that his killing had been interrupted, and he was not going to let Quinn get away again. And before he could get there and get in, Quinn had bitten the male doctor, presumably killed him, and then he bites the female doctor, and Blade looks ready to either just leave her or kill her, I'm not quite sure, but you see the flashback to Blade's birth. You know, you see it intercut. It's not very subtle. And so it's like, okay, Blade's thinking of his mom, and that's why he saves Karen. Yeah, that's what I took it. And it's the same setting. Like, would he have any memory of this? No, but I guess he knows his own story. Presumably, at some point, someone has told him what has happened and why he is the way he is. So, Per the commentary, the original script had a line where he says he remembers his own birth. So, Yeah, of course. It's a movie. He has to. (laughs) Okay. Well, it is his big motivating factor. It is the whole reason why Blade is siding with the human side over the vampire side. Because, theoretically, he could just as easily be teaming up with Stephen Dorff, right? I mean, Stephen Dorff calls him Uncle Tom for going with the humans. 
And frankly, if he's so morally opposed to the way vampires feed off humans, is he any less or more compassionate by doing all of these vampires? I mean, it's pick your poison here. They're both killers. And I don't see any conflict in him. I mean, he has no trouble deciding that vampires are bad and humans are good, basically because of his mother complex. He's not a very conflicted character for all of his angst. Well, slice it how you will. I don't know that there are too many pro-human cows. (laughs) So I got to think that vampires being evil because they feed on us is a pretty safe thing to say. Do you have an argument for the vampire side, Stuart? Because vampires supposedly killed his mom, so he hates them. But he is half vampire. I mean, it's like he's rejecting part of his heritage. I'm not even going to go with a Nazi analogy. (laughs) I'm just saying there's, it doesn't matter if something's part of your heritage. If it's bad, it's bad. You know, well, you know, it's bad for humans, but you know, like if everyone were a vampire, it wouldn't be a problem. So you're saying you are a vampire sympathizer? Yes. <laughs> I don't want to get too far into the vampire sympathy. I just think it's interesting that you have, have a character that's a hybrid, and he really, I would think, would have mixed feelings about what he's doing. Or I guess he does have the thirst, but it's always about quenching that thirst with garlic. Like he does not want to give in to those impulses. It's actually not garlic. He has a serum that an herbalist makes him that we get one scene of. And so it's like a synthetic blood. If you watch True Blood, I guess it's kind of like that, only it apparently needs to be injected and hurts like a bitch. Right. So if he can do that, why can't vampires do that? Oh, well, I'm going to leave that alone. Well, you know, that does get to my next question, which is he takes Karen back and they inject her with garlic. And that's supposed to be a hopeful cure, so she's not termed. But then later on, Chris Christopherson says, you only have day or two at the most. Yeah, what I love is, you know, we talked earlier about, do we have sympathy for Blade, or are we rooting for him as a hero? He saves Karen, they shoot her full of garlic, and then said, if you start feeling, you know, allergic to sunlight, shoot yourself in the head. Bye, I'm leaving you. Like, (laughs) this is your hero? He he shoots him up with something and says, hey, you might need to kill yourself later on. And he does not grow more compassionate over the film. I understand you can start that way, but Blade will learn to love and care. No, he doesn't. He would would be chucking that woman out the window at the end just as unfeelingly as he does in the beginning of this movie. He's not changed as a character one iota. No, and the death of Whistler doesn't help that matter. I mean, he is sad for Whistler's death, but that doesn't make him any more attached to Karen. So this was my question is, is this supposed to be a romantic relationship between Blade and Karen? Because I don't know. I guess you get a man and a woman together in a film. I'm just expecting a romance, but I do not see it here. No, I didn't get the sense that it was a sexual attraction between them. However, I would say when we get towards the end and she becomes the means by giving refeeding some of the blood that he's lost when she rescues him from the sarcophagus that's drained him, I do feel like, much like Fright Night, that biting scene, the moans, all of that, it did feel orgasmic. But, you know, it was a one-night stand. They don't have any true love that will last over centuries. Yeah, there's not a buildup for that where he starts having feelings for her and he doesn't want her to turn. And so that's a big deal when she sacrifices her own blood for him. Like, there's none of that emotion there. I agree with you, Stuart. It's wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. You know, I'm never going to call you again. Mm -hmm. And I don't 
don't like her either. Can I just say <laughs> that this woman is not appealing? The fact that she is tagging along and like this was the one, like really, I didn't need her. I've, I've been much rather have spent more time with the mother character, the actual one that was bitten and gave birth to Blade and having him reunite with her. I think that would have been a more interesting dynamic than this chick who I guess she's functional because she's a hematologist. She works with blood and she, as soon as she's bitten, can start working on a cure or what does she come up with? What is this stuff? She comes up with a couple different things, actually. She must be the world's best hematologist to, in the span of a couple <laughs> days, develop entire new things. Put her on the AIDS thing because she'll have it fixed in a week. <laughs> but she first comes up with a new weapon, which... I wrote this down because I never remember it. It's just, I call it the blue juice. The EDTA. Does that stand for anything or they just throw the initials <laughs> Here, here out I there. go. I'm going to try this. <laughs> Ethylnidiaminiteracetic acid. All right. So it's, it's like trying to pronounce the proper name for LSD. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. <laughs> so this EDTA, which is actually a real compound. Ooh. She's trying to use it to cure vampirism and it turns out that it makes vampire blood go boom. Yeah, this is the thing that makes the people, like, head swell and pop. Yes. Like scanners. Yeah. That's kind of a fun effect. So she creates this brand new weapon for him. So in that way, she's functionally useful to the team, giving Blade a new weapon other than his garlic and silver. Yeah. But she also is still trying to find a cure for vampirism. And by the end of the movie, she says, I can cure you, but you'll lose Everything that makes you special, you'll lose the strength, you'll lose the agility, you'll lose the healing. And so, I don't know if she actually had finished that, or if she was just really close to it, but those were the things that she developed in the span of, like, a week. Hmm. Maybe she can develop something to give him a personality. <laughs> and why don't she do a couple shots of it while herself? I mean, these guys are just boring. It's a real problem for me that most of the movie is spent watching these people. If you're going to have a monosyllabic, unlikable, angry character as your central premise, you need to surround them with colorful types that are fun to watch. And Chris Christopherson needs to be more fun. This chick needs to be more compelling. And she's our gateway into this world. We're supposed to be siding with her. And I don't like her, and I'm bored every time she's on screen. I'm going to say, just to give you hope for future installments, Stuart, this is a lesson the filmmakers learn going ahead. Hence Ryan Reynolds. Yes, we get Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> this is my savior? <laughs> Green Lantern? You will like him before now playing is done. <laughs> oh, you're doing a terrible job of selling me on this, but all right. It's just become a joke at this point with you, Stuart. Sorry. <laughs> No, I'm right there with you, Stuart. As much as I had fun and enjoyed that opening club scene, now I'm just getting bored. Mm -hmm. I wish this was just a crazy grindhouse vampire slasher movie. Just excessive violence. I really don't even need the character moments if there's just a lot of gore and good choreography with the killings. I could go with that. You know, if, again, I, I'm trust in your guys' memory of the 90s that this was like a tough character because he's just coming off as funny to me <laughs> as a parody. But there's nothing going on. They're talking about blood and garlic extract and I just want something to happen by this point. Well, there's like a half an hour by that, but then they send Karen on her way and we get to introduce to the familiars, you know, like the Renfields to the vampires, the human aides that do their dirty work and get the little tattoos. Yeah, they're prison bitch. Yeah. Yawn. Uh-huh. Not interesting. Did you recognize him, though? No. Should I have? 
<laughs> it's continuing a trend of being a forgettable character in a horror movie. He was Drew Barrymore's boyfriend in Scream. You know, the other one that got killed that you always forget about? Steve? The boyfriend? Yeah! <laughs> and here he is again, not making an impression. He's like the reflection of a vampire in a mirror. It, just, it can't happen. We cannot see him, even though he's standing right there. But he leads Blade to the Japanese club where Blade gets to kick some ass. Yes, I love the Japanese club. I do too. That is just like so weird and random to suddenly see Japanese schoolgirls rapping. Yes, I wish this entire film was just club scenes. Because (laughs) Stephen Norrington, the director, he could really film the hell out of a club scene. You get the schoolgirl rap band and just, again, the pounding music, the weird high-pitched vote. Like, it's fun again. Good. Maybe we'll get something now. Like, I would argue, again, this is what this movie is. It's all about being at a club. Everyone looks so cool. It's just a fashion show. I mean, truly, this is not a good action movie. This is not a scary horror movie. This is just a movie in which vampirism is a way to preen and vote. I, I disagree. I think this is a great action movie. But... Also, to go back to the director for a moment, one thing that I love that he does are the little quick flashes of vampirism, you know, where, like, you see a vampire and she's looking pretty, but then it's, like, in a strobe and she looks like a walking corpse. Or the cars are speeding by and then the camera strobes and you see a vampire's eating somebody on the corner, you know? I love the way he sells this world to me. Yeah, you put on the blood goggles. Sometimes you're like, oh, it looks pretty. Oh, wait, no, fangs. Can't do it. Yeah, there's a great scene after with Karen, Blade tells her, you know, there's this hidden world. You know, it's not all what sugar-coated frosting or whatever. It, it's this whole war against the vampires. And she starts looking around and you do all those quick flashes. I, I did think that was clever. But when they go to the Japanese club, they walk in the refrigerator and meet Pearl. Yes, I'm loving this again. Like, this is just <laughs> weird. You know, it's reminding me of Big Trouble in Little China. Just crazy, out-of-this-world stuff with this weird, I don't know, I, they, Pearl seemed kind of Asian, obese, vampire, techie? We, we need a new word. Yes. Obese doesn't even begin. We need, like, Mobis. Yeah. and i'm glad they went with kind of the cheesy looking latex effects here not the cgi like this is working for me if this is supposed to be some b action exploitation slasher film that's when this is working for me i do like pearl i like again it's 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 a he right (laughs) i don't know i'm pretty sure it's a he it's it's i think it's they refer to him as he but with a name like pearl and the voice i keep thinking she but he is very kind of snarky he can't move or anything but yet he's snarky and then they burn him a little and yet he still goes back to being snarky he's like i'm not really sure you know i i like him he's funny he's a good bit of comic relief so after pearl blade's able to i guess explode his way into the archives luckily that all those plastic explosives didn't destroy anything (laughs) but then some of deacon's posse shows up and they get in this big fight Whistler comes out of nowhere to save the day. Here's where I'm confused, because they have all these scrolls in the archives, the old vampire Bible. And they established earlier that vampires couldn't read this language anymore, and that's why Deacon is using his MacBook to translate it. And then Whistler's like, oh yeah, this is about some prophecy. Yeah, this is the blood prophecy. And he starts just reading it off the top of, like, (laughs) this is where the details start confusing me. Like, was this a dead language? Then why is Whistler just able to kind of read it when Deacon needed a supercomputer? The old vampires didn't need anything. It's frustrating me. It's not sticking to its logic. You know, I guess because these are more minor points, and Pearl is the one who talks about LaMadra. 
So I don't know how much of it Whistler was really reading versus how much he maybe had heard of La Madra. I don't know, but can I just say that whenever we have dialogue about the spirit of the Twelve will awaken the blood god, like, my eyes just roll. I mean, I barely do some of this kind of mythology <laughs> kind of speak. It just so, kind so you'll of, be on the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> you got to do it a little, and I understand it's world building, but this movie, I feel like whenever these people are talking about anything, it's always about blood gods and 12 whatevers and this and that, and it just, I'm not being caught up in this world. I don't want to be here. I want either it, this to be a rock and action movie or a scary horror movie, and I feel like it's neither. See, and I think it does it just right. I think it has enough there that we know that this is going to end with La Madra showing up. I mean, how can it not? I know. But it doesn't go so far into it that it goes too far, like, for me, Lord of the Rings or Underworld or so many of these things that get so caught up their own asses. This is no Screamers, where it spends the first half of the film <laughs> world building. You have no idea what's going on. No, it's not Screamers. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But it's a lot of Temple of Eternal Night and blah. It's just, I don't know. It's the humorlessness of it. It's the fact that everyone's saying it with a straight face, where I'd be like, <laughs> I mean, come on. It's just, you can't take this seriously. And I wish somebody here was having more fun. I'm having fun. And during the whole subway chase, Whistler says the line I think we've all been waiting for him to say, I'm too old for this. Isn't that just a staple in the 90s that everybody over the age of 40 has to say that? Yeah, the partner to the crazy one always has to be geriatric. And, well, Chris Christopherson is. I believe him. (laughs) (laughs) This ain't just Danny Glover just huffing and puffing. This man needs to sit down. But, yes, it all is building to La Madra. And while Blade and Frost are having their showdown on the street, Frost has actually sent Quinn and the others to go after Whistler. And Whistler dies. Did this impact you guys at all? Nope, didn't care. Like, it was not emotional at all. Blade didn't even seem to care when he found out about Whistler. I don't know if Snipes was actually trying to act like he was sad, and he's just a bad actor, or if he didn't care. If, like, the direction was, yeah, you're Blade, you don't care. Because he didn't seem moved at all. How did they even find the place? I honestly thought it was something with the whole subway chase, like they found out then. Because Whistler kind of escapes down a sewer grate, and we don't know where all the vampires go. Some blew up, some got hit by a subway, but some lived. Quinn lived. But I don't know. When I first saw this, I didn't feel moved by any means, but I thought that in his stoic way, Blade was hurt by the loss of his father figure. I mean, basically, what you have is similar arcs going on between Frost and Blade, right? One has an antagonistic relationship with his father figure, Udo Kier, and so he kills him. The other has a good relationship with his father, so Frost kills him. It's a movie where everything that happens that's painful to you can only be expressed as an action, a retaliation. I mean, that's what I mean. He's a one-dimensional character. Blade is is happy. He's going to go kill something. Blade is upset. He's going to go kill something. It's just dull to me. And it's dull to me because there's not enough killing. I wish there was more killing in this film. Well, this gets Blade all ready to go and kick some ass. Yes, we get the uh, obligatory montage where he's making his silver bullets and getting his weapons all ready. This is the final battle. Yes, but there's something I have to ask there. He cuts a plant. What was going on with that? 
like he's doing Buddhist meditation and it's focusing on this plant. Like he cuts the root off. Like I get it. It's symbolism. He's cutting the roots, his vampire roots or something. But what was the point? Like they never built up what that plant was. It just shows up and he cuts the roots off. I couldn't tell if he was harvesting garlic. Is it was it a garlic plant? I have no idea what that was. I googled blade cut the plant, but it was just too generic. So I couldn't yeah. find anything. If any of our listeners know what the hell was up with that plant, please tell me in our forums. You probably got some good gardening tips, though. <laughs> Which I would rather be hearing than talking about this movie, but we shall go on. <laughs> but, come on. Now, Stuart, you said this is a bad action movie. This is where it kicks into high gear. Wesley Snipes is a badass when he's doing his martial arts shit. I mean, they go in, he's attacked by a couple ninjas in a hallway, he makes their heads explode in some terrible CGI. I like the head explode. Yeah, as bad as the CGI was, I liked how cheesy that looked. I agree. And I think I'm going with you, Jacob, in that if they can just make it more cheesy, it would be more fun. If they're not hooking me with the realism of this, at least make this, yeah, grindhouse. Make this silly, and then I could have some fun. I don't think this fighting is interesting at all. At this point, I gotta ask. We gotta shoot out in the lobby towards the end of the film with guys in black trench coats. We saw some bullet time earlier. You know, we find out the real world isn't the real world. There's a secret war going on. Is anyone having, like, thinking The Matrix at this point? Definitely. I know The Matrix came out the next year, but, like, it's pretty well documented, like, that The Matrix ripped off another comic book series called The Invisibles. But I don't know. Maybe it was just the Zitkeist at the time that we all wanted to wear black leather trench coats and shoot really slowly. That look was out of date. I mean, that was something we had already done in the 80s. That, when they showed up, like, in the Matrix and people were like, cool, I'm like, that's stale. Like, that was a fashion choice. Like, it wasn't even retro to go back that. I mean, that was a very recent fashion move that was passe. I never have understood the whole trench coat thing and, like, how this... But yes, this movie and and Matrix and all of that were celebrating late 80s mullet and leather jacket culture. I don't get it. I honestly think, again, that goth culture was bringing it back. It wasn't just these two movies. It was that kind of scene. It was that LARPing mid-90s chic. And it was geeky, but it was also supposed to be futuristic. I mean, keep in mind, we were coming up on the millennium. It was a scary time, even before Y2K. Yeah, and you can throw the crow in there, too. I know he's not a vampire, but it's the same sort of undead, chic coming back. But what I don't like about the goth thing is that it's not being anything other than being disaffected. It refuses to apply to any genres. It's just standing back and saying, look at me, aren't I so goth? And I I need them to do something here. Like, I just feel like it's driving me crazy that this movie refuses to be entertaining. It refuses to be scary, and it refuses to be a good action. I mean, I guess that's debatable. There's certainly a lot of action in this last part. I don't think any of it is exciting, and probably a large part of that is I don't like any of these people and I don't care who lives or dies. I guess I have a thing for swordplay, especially martial arts swordplay. My high point of the Phantom Menace is the lightsaber fight at the end with Darth Maul, Obi-Wan, and Qui-Gon, with Ray Park and his ninja moves and everything, but... 
a year before that, I'm getting that fix here. Again, I cited Mortal Kombat. Now, I'm not a WWE or martial arts or MMA fan by any stretch of the imagination. But when it's well choreographed and set to some techno music, I seem to really enjoy it. (laughs) And I think you're not alone. I definitely think there's a lot of people that are going to enjoy this action. But from a storytelling perspective, as the culmination of things that have happened, I don't feel like a lot's happened in this movie that's been interesting. I don't like the hero that we're following. And I don't feel like the people he's fighting are particularly good. If you'd gotten Jet Li, I probably would have been wowed. But I just don't feel like Donald Logue and Stephen Dorff are particularly adept at wire foo. Well, Donald Logue gets his comeuppance really quickly when that happens. It's over in a blink. Yeah. But before we get to the final actual physical showdown between Dorf and Blade, there is one other thing that you alluded to earlier, Stuart. Blade's mama reappears. Yeah, and that was a surprise. I was not expecting it. And now this becomes a movie about an Oedipus complex for me. You're not wrong, because I'm thinking, wow, I think Blade has a much more romantic chemistry thing going with Vanessa than he ever did with Karen. Mm-hmm. I agree, and it makes it interesting. To me, this is something unexpected and kind of twisted and dark, and let's see where it goes. I feel like she's taken out of this picture way too quickly. I rather wish it had been her and him throughout the whole movie than this hematologist. I don't know how I feel about the introduction of Vanessa. On the one hand, I feel it's too convenient that, oh, Deacon, the big villain, he's the one who bit your mother. Well, we did know that coming, right? I mean, it doesn't take a genius to realize if he's looking for the one vampire that killed his mama, and there's this brat one that's killing off all the old vampires. Well, it wouldn't be satisfying if it was Udukir who got killed by somebody else, you know, 30 minutes ago. It's got to be, Stephen. That's a given, right? You know, I didn't actually see it coming, but there's one scene where, like, Frost is just sitting in a room, and there's, like, a metal vault coffin behind him, and it opens up, and a sexy black woman gets out. And it's, we'd never seen her before, and they'd really try not to show her face, and I'm like, oh, that has to be the mother. <laughs> well, I didn't notice. Yeah, it, it's one scene, it's very quick. Usually they give more clues here, they just want to surprise you with it, because they got nothing else to do. Because right before we have this final showdown, to finish off the Oedipus Complex, Blade literally bones his mother. <laughs> oh, like, I... literally takes a bone and sticks it in her, killing her. He sucks off Karen. Wow, you're just really putting some terms there, aren't you, Jacob? <laughs> Well, he is called Blade. I mean, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're talking about this being in the tradition of exploitation films. Yeah. Which would make a lot more sense for having these. I'm not making this stuff up. They're showing it. You know, he does this. I don't think you're entirely wrong. I do feel like there's a winkingness in, in some of this. But to what effect, I'm not sure. But isn't the whole thing, he couldn't drink blood because he would become the bad guy now, he'd become the vampire? Isn't Karen, now that her blood's been drained, isn't she a full vampire? Like before, it was like a snake bite. She had a little bit of venom in there, she's trying to create something to destroy that venom. Now it's like, she don't got no blood. Yeah. She's a vampire now. No, she was still human at that point. Somewhat. But why? It's not following vampire physics. They said she had a couple more days. Because of that garlic from a few days before? Like, even on a base level, things don't make sense to me in this film. And and that's a problem. Yeah, even if she had a couple more days, she can't lose all that blood that he sucks out of her and walk around and be okay. It is ridiculous. And I'm assuming and hoping this character doesn't return in the sequels. Why not just have her die? I mean, we don't have any affection for her. He's not even the girlfriend. I mean, why don't we just make it a one-night stand and, you know, wham, bam... Bury him, ma'am. Well, I think she's supposed to become the new Whistler, because at the end, he goes, you want to help me? 
make me a better Sarah. So I think she's supposed to be the new techie sidekick. We've already seen she's built him better weapons than Whistler did. If it wasn't for her, Blade couldn't stop LaMadra. Huh. I, I guess I can see that, but it wasn't evident to me watching the movie, I guess. I mean, am I wrong here? Nabush Wright is not interesting, right? Get nothing out of her. No, terrible, terrible. Yeah, a dry casting choice. Just, I have no feeling. Not even disdain. Just, like, I don't care that you're on screen. The same as I feel about a lot of the characters here. I'd say my standouts, the ones I like in this film, the ones who I go to, are Chris Christopherson, Donald Logue, and Stephen Dorff. And to a lesser degree, Udo Kier. Everybody else, the one we haven't even talked about, the blonde, Mercury, she's such a nothing. Karen is a nothing. Blade himself, as you've said, is very one note, very stoic. He has one gear. So, yeah, it's how she was written. There's nothing Nabouche could have done better with it that I see. But, yeah, it, it nothing about it draws me to her either. But in the actual ending we get, we get... An ending I really like. I like this end sword fight between Steven Dorff, Stunt Double, and Wesley Snipes. No, I, I agree with you, Arnie. Like, I feel like this ending scene is as close as they got to the fun I was having at that opening scene. Yeah, that's why when, at the beginning of this podcast, Stuart said it's the best scene of the film, that opening nightclub. I said maybe, because this ending scene is a close tie for me. I think that it's it's hard for me to say. It's a second place. It's not close for me. The reason I say close is because at the beginning, Blade kills a whole bunch of characters we've never seen before or see again. I barely even noticed Tracy Lord's getting it. Here, it's against a character that I actually have enjoyed watching throughout two hours of film, Stephen Dorff. And so this fight means more to me. But I'm seeing a theme here as we discuss this, because in a spiritual way, this makes Frostblade's father, right? Because Frost is the one who bit her. Yes, and that's why this becomes an Oedipus complex, because Blade the entire time is trying to kill his father and kill his father unknowingly, like very true to the Oedipus Rex mythology, is he didn't even know he killed his father till after he killed him. So it's not like he knew he's going after his dad the whole time. This isn't Return of the Jedi, where he knows the bad guy's <laughs> his dad. Literally, right before he kills him, you know, he finds out a few minutes before. But he just had the death of his good father... At the hand of his bad father, you know, it's it seems like there's a lot of father issues going on here. I wouldn't say any of it's told in a particularly compelling way, however. Yes, they're here. And yes, <laughs> I would really dig that if this movie were about that. But that's all just reasons for angst and fighting. Again, Blade is not a complicated character that talks about the way he feels. He feels one thing, and it's constant rage. This is very true. And then we get La Madra. Now... When I saw this in theaters, I see this whole ritual, and the drops of blood fall on Steven Dorff. Very bad CGI drops of blood. And then he goes bloodshot. And I'm sitting there like, that's it? He becomes La Madra, and he looks like my mother after too many bourbons? <laughs> yeah, because on the video game computer he was watching, it's like this whirlwind of blood just takes over the earth. Like... It was such a letdown. I was confused because, first of all, I didn't know where they were. I did not know what this Temple of Eternal Night was. Wait, so wait, Stuart. The Temple of Eternal Night, which was built to carry out this ritual that was prophesied in a dead language. So this thing's got to be like thousands and thousands of years old in uh -huh. Detroit. <laughs> no, Los Angeles. We're in Los oh, Angeles. Oh, is this? Okay. This is not Detroit? No, this is L.A. I wasn't sure if it's Detroit or L.A. Are you sure of that, Arnie? Because what I read was that it was Detroit. I never heard them say Detroit. Well, he was born in Detroit. 
He was born in Detroit, but this whole thing was filmed in L.A., and there's some big city shots, Stuart. I figured you would... Yeah, I thought I recognized it as L.A. It's not very clear to me that... I mean, I I assumed that it was shot in L.A. It was not clear to me that it was supposed to be in L.A. A lot of that downtown stuff was not downtown L.A. recognizable. Yeah, all I know is it was filmed in L.A., so they never say the city name. The TV series takes place in Detroit, but... So... This ancient ritual, blah, 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 in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, I think there's a timeline issue here. Not really. It could have been built by the Navajo. (laughs) Navajo vampires. Oh, yeah. Maybe for the sequel. So I'm going to go with that. You're going to go with that. That's cool with you. (laughs) No, it's not cool with me. It's absolutely not cool with me. But I'm going with it so that I can make a larger problem. Glaringly apparent. And that is, they've done all of this thing. I thought it contained the creature. Like it was a jail cell. But it's really a transformation room. Like, it's really about how to become what? I feel like when they pull back the curtain, I'm waiting for something big, right? I'm waiting for the big monster thing to get unleashed. You even get some lightning scenes. Like, something big's coming. Yeah, something tough enough for it to be formidable for Blade. The Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, even. Something... <laughs> Something threatening, and it's Steven Dorf with red eyes. I'm like, well, shit, can I just leave now? Because I know who's going to win. <laughs> All right, I will say, again, I mentioned when I saw it in theaters, I was kind of scratching my head, too, wondering exactly where this big Lamadra was that was going to turn everybody into a vampire and things. And yeah, we get to see Steven Dorf gets cut in half, and this is the really bad CGI. Oh. He pulls himself back together. It wasn't until I bought the DVD a year later that I saw the original ending of this film. The one that was screened for audiences and they fucking hated it. And what happened is La Madra, it's basically kind of what you see. But when Wesley cuts off Steven Dorff's arm, he becomes a blood whirlwind of like particles of blood. It's a really bad CGI shot. It, oh, wait, are you serious? I'm serious. I, I thought they would do, be able to do a cool blood whirlwind because the CGI <laughs> and the rest of this film was so great. <laughs> and it literally like starts pelting Wesley with blood and Steven Dorff's head pops out of the blood whirlwind and talks some shit and then oh, goes my. back in. <laughs> so it's basically a variation on the space cloud from Greenland is what you're telling kind of and wesley just kind of pours the blue stuff in and the red cloud explodes it's really bad it's terrible and i could see why audiences hate it i hated it because i've gone on record saying i hate it when our villain that we've loved to watch the whole movie turns into some cgi monstrosity at the end i much preferred steven dorf who on my first watchings i loved on this watching i still kind of like i much rather have him around to the very end than some bad cgi blood whirlwind well yeah i'm just disappointed that everything has been hinging on la madra and it's nothing i really feel it's as anticlimactic as it could be it it gives steven dorf a good stunt double that's the power of la madra (laughs) but yeah it is kind of sad because wesley snipes fifth degree black belt steven dorf trained actor trained (laughs) i'm assuming (laughs) (laughs) three feet shorter i mean this is it's ridiculous (laughs) Poor Steven Dorf, I like this man. He was good in The Gate. The Gate? Yeah. (laughs) And I love it when, like, after killing all the lackeys, Blade does his little sword twist move. I thought that was pretty badass, too. I'm I'm loving Wesley's badassness, even if the character himself has nothing else but that. Yeah, I love, what is it? He blows up one of the vampires and their sunglasses go flying off and he grabs him and puts him on. 
Well, they're his sunglasses. Quinn stole them from him earlier. That's right. Now, that is something that bothers me, and this is the sunglasses, because it's like with Blade, when he takes the sunglasses off or when he's supposed to have the tender moments. And all the other time, he's, like, guarded behind the sunglasses. And sadly, that is a level of acting that I associate specifically with Corey Feldman. The, my sunglasses make me emotional bit. But yes, they're his sunglasses that he finally got back from Quinn. And once he has his sunglasses back, well, now he's able to really kick ass. You know, in the action film, I guess I associate it with Terminator. In 2 and 3, it was always a big deal when Arnold gets the sunglasses. And it's a fun moment, the, grabbing the sunglasses, they fly in the air, put them on. Like, it's fun again. Like, I've been bored throughout so much of this film, I'm just glad to be smiling, just having fun. And so after the fight, Blade flies to Moscow, and... <laughs> <laughs> He's decided to leave Los Angeles for once and go international. Can he turn into half of a bat and fly there? <laughs> it's I don't know. I'm hoping the sequel will explain all of this. Maybe they'll even go to Moscow. I know nothing about Blade 2, only that Guillermo del Toro directed it, which gives me hope that it's going to be a lot more interesting uh, than this movie was. I'm right there with you, Stuart. I've never seen Blade 2, but I love del Toro's work. He does well when he's working with monsters. Yeah, I like it when he does Spanish language movies, less the English language. So it may be a problem for me, but I feel confident that I'm going to like what I get more next time than what I got here. You you mean you you haven't enjoyed the director that also did The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? (laughs) Do I have to review that movie? Is that coming in my future? If we do a DC retrospective, you will. Ooh. Oh boy, I, that 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 means we're not doing a DC retrospective. <laughs> if it's bad enough that Arnie doesn't want to do it, that's scary. <laughs> <laughs> and I was the one championing Generation X. <laughs> All right, but before we get to Blade Two, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Blade? Jacob, you know when I first saw this back in '99 when I rented it, I was in a very different state of my life. I was in college and very hoity-toity, and I didn't have time for action films. And I remember when I first saw this, I just hated it. I just had my arms crossed the entire time, and I was looking forward to coming back to it this time, because my tastes have changed. I've lightened up. Not everything needs to be, you know, some black-and-white foreign film for me to enjoy it. I enjoy just crazy, violent, fun films, Grindhouse. I've talked about that. The problem for me is we've used so many food analogies in our recommendations (laughs) on Now Playing. Blade, to me, is like a sandwich with some really good bread and some really bland, like, bologna in the middle. Like, (laughs) I love that opening scene. I love that ending scene here. You know, maybe there's a nice, good, thick piece of cheese where you get into Pearl and the the Japanese (laughs) club. I enjoyed that little bit. But I was just bored throughout so much of this. And the CGI in this just bugs me so much because it is just so bad. I don't remember what I thought of it at the time when I originally watched this, but this time it just pulled me out every time I saw it. So, you know what? There's a line in this film. Some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. That's how I feel about this film. Like, it had all the things there to make it good. Excessive violence, you know, some cheesy tough guy stuff. And it just does its best to make that boring and not go along with it. And I was really looking forward to coming back at this film and enjoying it. But I just found myself bored through most of it. So I'm not going to recommend Blade. Stuart, given that this is all part of a larger Marvel series, I couldn't help think about Wolverine. 
Blades even kind of like Wolverine with his regenerative properties and certainly his attitude. You could maybe like this character if he was part of a larger force fighting evil and supernatural. I could probably go with it. But you isolate him alone, and this blade is dull. It has no edge to it, and it's superficially dark. But to me, it's very juvenile and boring. I know that there are some people that eat this stuff up, and they're the people that go see Priest and Underworld and Blood and Chocolate and all those other goth crow movies that I don't see. I'm not interested in this character, and I can't be interested in this movie. It's a pretty strong not recommend. For me, I did really enjoy this film when I saw it when it first came out in 98, and... I revisited it a couple of times on video, but I don't think I've seen it in more than 10 years. And so I was really looking forward to going back to seeing what I thought of Blade, because my memories were liking Stephen Dorff, not really liking Wesley. And, you know, knowing that this film brought forth the Marvel age of movies, I was wondering if it really deserved it. And in watching it, I think it does. I think that this is really good. And you know, if this movie had sucked, if it was another 1990 Captain America, another Dolph Lundgren Punisher, another Howard the Duck or Man-Thing, we might not have the Avengers coming next year. But Blade was strong enough to launch an entire series of movies, show they're viable, give Avi Arad the power he needed to get X-Men going, and it holds up almost 15 years later to me. I still think this film's exciting and fun. Jacob, you said that you were bored. And I said I was bored too, don't forget me. <laughs> I was getting to you. <laughs> and Stuart, you referenced The Crow and all those other movies. I'm not a huge fan of this style, but I can dip my big toe in it. And that's how I feel this is. You get to Underworld or some bullshit like that, and I can't stand it. But here, it was just the right amount. I liked Deacon Frost and all of the internal struggles in the House of Erebus. I liked the insurrection against Udo Kerr and the sunrise there. I liked the performances in this film as far as the ones I've named. I even like Wesley Snipes' performance. Blade is kind of a one-note character, but... Not kind of. <laughs> Blade is a one-note character, <laughs> but I like what Wesley does with it. I like his deliveries, and I like his action. I especially like the action. And a lot of kudos have to go to League of Extraordinary Gentlemen director Stephen Norrington for putting this together with a music video style with the techno-throbbing beat and all the dance club scenes and the lighting and the effects that really give it an atmosphere and a fun vibe. You know, Stuart, you said this movie's all about the parties. When I watch this movie, I feel like I'm at a party. I have a lot of fun with this movie, and it's a really strong recommend. I just enjoy it all that much despite a handful of minor problems. I still had a hell of a lot of fun watching it for this retrospective. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And, you know, as much as I don't like to start out a new series with a not recommend, I don't feel like this is irredeemable. I don't feel like I hated any of it. I'm not going to say that it was terrible. What I'm saying is they haven't sold me yet on how to make this character work in this world. I don't feel like it was exciting in its direction. I do feel like it was too cool in its posturing and looking and not good enough as an action movie or a horror movie. And so I'm glad that it's going to other directors and he's going to get new friends. And I'm still optimistic that there's still some good here. Maybe. Now, let me ask you guys. We know we're getting more Blade. What would you guys think of getting more Deacon? Is that a joke? <laughs> 
No. no. Because <laughs> I would go see a doctor about having it removed. <laughs> he played his role in the first film, and I think that's enough. He's not coming back in two, is he? No way. Come on. They wouldn't be that dumb. He's not coming back in two or three. But there was a lot of talk as this movie was being made about a Deacon prequel starring Stephen Dorff. <laughs> What I need, I already know what I need to know about him. He bit Blade's mom. What else is there? Come on. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I guess Dorf had been working on for quite some time, trying to get off the ground. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure Dorf really wanted to see that movie be made. Did anyone else talk about that movie? Or is that just Steven Dorf at every party in 1998? (laughs) Actually, as of 2009... (laughs) Oh, I know he wants to do it now. Dorf is talking about a prequel trilogy of Deacon Frost films. (laughs) Maybe he can get Corey Feldman and other people that used to be in vampire movies and cobble together something. Come on, there's no movie in that. Let's not even kid the whole notion of it. There's nothing there. And what I understand is Norrington and Dorf had a story treatment all written out, and they said it was going to be more like a Scarface Deacon Frost film. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I I can't wait for it, and I'll see it right after I see... (laughs) Green Lantern 2? Transformers 4? (laughs) (laughs) Well, now, apparently, New Line, or whoever New Line is these days, is saying comic book movies are all about Avengers and vampires are 290s. And so, Norrington and Dorf are talking about taking the basic treatment, removing Deacon as the vampire, and making it a different vampire played by Steven Dorf. So, if Steven Dorf shows up in a vampire Scarface film in the next couple years, know that it was intended to be Deacon Frost. Okay, well, you know what, I do feel like we're hardly in an era where vampires are not a part of pop culture. That movie probably will get made, with or without Steven Dorff, but I'm not chomping at the bit. Let me say, when I walked out of Blade, both times, this time and in 98, I was be more excited to see another Steven Dorff film than another Wesley Snipes' Blade film. I mean, I enjoy the action here, but I just found Dorf to be so much more a charismatic actor than Snipes, and just so much more fun of an on-screen presence in this film. Would you have wanted Lost Boys 2 without any Frog Brothers and just Kiefer? We reviewed the Lost Boys 2. Yes! Yes, I would! (laughs) (laughs) They had Kiefer's brother in it. (laughs) Not the same. Not the same. I guess I can go to the archives and listen to that one again. I missed the movie somehow, but uh, I'll check it out. (laughs) Well, Stuart, Jacob, thank you for joining me for Blade. And we will be back next week reviewing Guillermo del Toro's Blade 2. And don't forget, if you want to hear our reviews of other Marvel films, Fantastic Four, The Marvel Misfits, Howard the Duck, Man-Thing, and Kick-Ass, all the X-Men films, you can find all of this in our archive section at NowPlayingPodcast.com, as well as many other movie reviews. We reviewed the entire Transformers series, the entire Friday the 13th series, Saw, Halloween, Terminator, Predator, so many that I can't even name them all here. Find them all in our archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com. So we'll talk to you next week, suckheads. It started with Blade, and it ended with him. The rest of us were just along for the ride. Thank you for listening to the now-playing Blade movie retrospective series, part of our Marvel Comics movie series. So where am I supposed to go? Come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week 
as we review another Blade film. She likes to listen to MP3s when she hunts. Me, I'm more of a David Hasselhoff fan, you know. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Marvel movie films with other listeners and read Arnie's reviews of Blade, the TV series. A new review will be posted in the forums each day during this retrospective series. Some kind of archive. This must be where they keep most of their records. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics films, such as X-Men and Fantastic Four, as well as non-comic book-based series including Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, Philip K. Dick, Tron, and many more. We also have individual movie reviews of films like Green Lantern, Avatar, Cowboys and Aliens, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Try some. You might like it. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. It's time you fucks contributed something to the cause. Don't be a bloodsucker. Donate to Now Playing. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. How do you think that we fund this organization, huh? We're not exactly the March of Dimes. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So, can we just go right ahead and sign you up for one of our secret Night Stalker Dakota rinks? You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping at our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available at our homepage. And that's basically turning a frown upside down. Now Playing's Blade Retrospective series is edited by Arnie. Now this here is a man who takes his job just a little too seriously, don't you think? Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Sounds good to me. Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or New Line Pictures. The Marvel characters in all of the Marvel Universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Marvel Publishing Incorporated and no infringement is intended. Damn it, Blade. Don't you see what they're doing? They're waging a goddamn PR campaign. Now it's not just vampires we gotta worry about. We're gonna have to take on the rest of the world, too. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Didn't notice it was a popularity contest. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. Now walk away. Bitch, walk the fuck away. It's not over. There's still a war going on. And I have a job to do. Kuchiko. Oh, come on. Don't you think they were just trying to make a de facto sequel to Vampire in Brooklyn? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants that. <laughs> Even Eddie wouldn't go back for that. <laughs> but I would love to see the fan film where Blade kills Vampire in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, that would be fun. Kuchiko. House of Cathan. And I expected to have to try to convince Stuart, yes, we have to do it. You couldn't have done it. <laughs> <laughs> Impossible, sir. Not after Fantastic Four, Green Lantern, and Generation X. Oh, but we have so many more coming up, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> the listeners made you do Green Lantern, not me. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Well, well, Stuart, maybe you would have liked more of the comic book origin where Blade's mother was a whore and Blade was born in a whorehouse to a half, you know, his mother gets bit while she's giving birth and then he's raised by whores. Wow. 
Well. <laughs> in England, which is the best part. Oh God, I would love for this to. Ha- I would love for Blade to have a Cockney accent. <laughs> I'm going to kill vampires, wow. Governor. That'd be great. Kuchiko. And Corey Feldman played this character who would all never take his sunglasses off. Except for when he needed to be have a heart to heart, then the sunglasses would come off and he'd make eye contact. And it's we have something serious to say. And then the sunglasses would go back on. And it's like Blade does that in this movie. It's it's So I'm unclear. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? It's a terrible thing if I'm associating Corey Feldman with it. But is it? You love Corey Feldman. No, I don't. You do. I like It's a complicated relationship. It's as Oedipal as Blade and his mom. So I I want to kill Corey Feldman? I'm not going to get into it, but your relation, your love hate for Corey goes beyond my comprehension. I can't define. Kuchiko. Blade Trace. Blade Trace. Why can I not talk today? Talk like Blade. Maybe it'll help. <laughs> Blade tracks down. What's his name? Quint. Frost. 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 Deacon. Yeah. Whatever. Kuchiko. I do got to ask though. Tracy Lords when he gets her. It's a shotgun to the pussy. No, it's not. It is not. It is clearly a shotgun to the pussy. It is not. It is, it, it is under her head. It is to the chin. It starts. Mm, I, I, what was the thinking on that? Like, that's he was kneeling, but he shoots her in the chin. I, I, I didn't freeze frame and I didn't even go back. Right, and I had to I, go back I, because I honestly. <laughs> okay. Well, if you assure me that it was not a shotgun to the pussy, I will believe you. I'm not going to go back to look. I, I like your thought... version more, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered if it was some like, like clause of like, well, if we put you in this legitimate movie, we must at least underline why you're here. <laughs> no, I honestly think she was here because her song is on the soundtrack. <laughs> Yeah, you couldn't go with anybody else. It had to be those Tracy Lord groups. Kuchiko. Gotta be a blink and you miss it kind of thing, because I do not remember a fist bump. No, he goes, yes, and does the fist bump. It's right there. I I saw it, Jacob. No, I believe you. It's there. This ain't no shock under the pussy. This is very obvious. (laughs) <laughs> That's just going to be my tagline from now on. This ain't no shotgun to the pussy. <laughs> I think we just wrote Robert Rodriguez's or Quentin Tarantino's next Grindhouse movie. 